Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. New York City, I'm very pleased to say we're here at the RBC Capital Markets Financial Institutions Conference. And joining me here in New York at this conference, I'm pleased to say, is the RBC CEO himself, Dave McKay. Dave, great to catch up with you this morning. Good morning. Nice early start to the day. So let's talk about your expansion into the United States and, and why you're ultimately here. So many people have tried to do this. And pretty much every day, my co-anchor Tom Keane and I will talk about European banks that have failed in their effort to expand in the United States. Why are you different? Well, I think it goes back to this is not an overnight success. We've been working at this for 10 years. It goes back to the early part of the last recession where we had balance sheet, put that balance sheet to work with clients where other banks were retreating. And therefore, when you're with a client and with a strategy over the better part of a decade, you know, clients reward you for that loyalty and being there. Continue to upgrade and expand our coverage environment while we're putting our balance sheet to work. And we're really pursuing uh, an originate and lending strategy where we'll put our balance sheet and cross-sell our DCM, ECM capabilities. So it's really, and it's not an overnight success. Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, RBS, there's such a long list of European players that are now retrenching into their core competencies, their core geographies. How do you identify the right strategies that you don't make the same mistakes that others have? We typically are a conservative institution uh, by nature, and we're thinking long-term. Long-term sustainable growth is a big part of our core strategy across all our businesses, not just capital markets. So when we're looking at you know, building a relationship with a client, we look at the long-term sustainability of that relationship. We look at the potential to drive long-term returns. We look at the credit risk. We put it all into balance, and we're looking to build long-term sustainable relationships. And that, for us, really was starting with a, kind of a mid-market capital market strategy across multiple sectors to diversify our book. And therefore, we've graduated that with you know, more bankers and upgrading bankers. We're very proud. We just recently was sole advisor to BB&T on yeah. the SunTrust a merger of equals. And that really talks to the power of our franchise, consistency, and the ability to deliver value to clients and to be that sole advisor in a historic transaction that way is really what we've been aiming for for the last 10 years as we've continued to upgrade and build relationships and build trust with CEOs across America. So let's talk about that sole advisory role that you did take. A lot of people were surprised by that. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, many people come on the program and talk to me about it, and they were surprised by the fact that you did get that. Is this a moment in time or a broader consolidation story that you think you could be a key player in? I think certainly. You have to to hand both BB&T, Kelly King, and and SunTrust a lot of credit for having the vision to build a larger competitive institution that will compete with the top four and bring the scale towards technology. And I think it's caused a lot of CEOs I've talked to even in the last 24 hours and since the announcement of the transaction to reevaluate the art of the possible, the implications of scale, and potentially the openness to do something more transformational. doesn't mean we'll see something else, but I think everyone's paused to digest and well, kudos to those two leaders who put the transaction together that, uh, you know, looking at the implications, I think it, it is foundation. So being an advisor in the consolidation story here yeah. in the United States, uh, the financial sector is one thing. Being an active participant in it right, right. is a different story. Mm-hmm. Are you looking at anything right now? You've made acquisitions in the past around the big one a couple of years ago. Are you looking at anything right now? 
we continually evaluate the ability to grow organically and inorganically. And we, we, we have a team dedicated to thinking through various opportunities to grow geographically. That would be our first presence within the United States. Can we expand into a new market? But it has to be a cultural fit with the potential acquisition uh, or merger partner. The economics have to be there for the shareholder. We made kind of a transaction that was longer term, a platform transaction with City National. We've earned our way back into our hurdle rates very quickly. But we benefited from economic tailwinds, benefited from a rising rate environment, we benefited from tax cuts, so we accelerated our return on shareholder investment. You look at those transactions going forward without those tailwinds, the economics are more difficult. Therefore, we're incredibly disciplined with the capital. We always look at alternative organic or returning it to shareholders. And when you look at the platform we have, we don't need it for a platform basis, it's more for geographic expansion and and acceleration. Therefore, the economics have to work, and the economics still are quite tough for the shareholder. You have to you have to forecast yeah. some end of cycle. So you're 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 acquiring it to the, towards the end of a cycle. So what's going to be the credit performance? Your cash flows could be delayed by an economic cycle turn. All those come into consideration when you're trying to drive shareholder value, and the market really really punishes players who, who overextend themselves. So many, CEOs, so many CEOs will tell me the price isn't right. They'll say the spread between the buyer and the seller is still too wide and right, it needs to come right. in. There's a decent chance it won't come in until the next downturn. Right, the right. question you've got to answer is ultimately, are you willing to extend your balance sheet in a recessionary environment to make that acquisition? Are you? If the, if the deal is right, absolutely. There's, I don't see a lot of difference between you have to delay your cash flows, but the uncertainty of doing it now before there's some type of economic credit cycle turn versus while you're in it. Maybe you have more information when you're in it, but maybe there's the seller's not as willing to sell. Certainly there's a few willing yeah. sellers right now, so all the ingredients may not come together either. You're, you're taking a risk between uh, every constituent coming together. So it's an uncertain game. At, at the end of the day, we have a growth platform organically that we're really excited about. We continue to grow, add private bankers, add commercial bankers on the wealth management side. Similarly on the capital market side, we're pulling our balance sheet to work, we're adding bankers. We just hired uh, another star banker, uh, Michelle yeah. Niels, joining the platform, as you reported on. Uh, so we're very excited about the opportunity to grow. If there's a, a, a tactical acquisition, we'll, we'll look at it, but right now we're focused organically. Hey Dave, great to catch up with you. Good yeah. luck for the rest of the day. Great. Dave McKay, the RBC CEO, right here at the RBC Capital Markets Financial Institutions Conference. With us, Howard Ward, wonderful long-term investor at Gabelli, acclaimed to say the least. We're thrilled that he gives us opinion on use of cash and maybe on Apple. I was kidding him earlier, calling him a Howard Apple off of uh, Tim Apple. But we won't, we'll, let's stop with Apple now because Boeing is so center. You own Boeing, let's say. What do you do given the news flow? Well, Tom, um, I think <clears throat> most investors that own Boeing will be best served by sitting tight until we have the resolution of the cause of this most recent crash. I believe that uh, Boeing, e e even in the event that this is another one of their problems associated with the software on that plane, they will be able to fix that and the orders for that plane will remain largely, if not entirely, intact. So uh, it has been an outstanding stock in recent years, even year to date. It's been one of the leading stocks in the Dow. 
Uh, so it's certainly there is certainly room there mm-hmm. for profit taking for those that might be somewhat nervous about this situation. But I think most people should sit tight. Sectors are different. How do you study a Boeing? which goes project to project, now is it an itty-bitty defense contractor? No, but nevertheless, they still live project to project as a general statement versus Microsoft, which has huge persistent cash flow, or for that matter, Apple as well. You have to study them differently, don't you? Well, you really do, and Boeing falls under the industrial category, and it, it is one of the premier industrial names because there is a uh, oligopoly in the commercial airspace business, which most of their business is commercial aviation as opposed to defense. And they have historically made the finest planes in the world, bar none. Airbus makes a fine plane, but Boeing has traditionally uh, you know, been the finest manufacturer of planes in the world and the largest uh, producer. So uh, you know that gives them a special place. And these are very long tail projects, these new planes, mm-hmm. which they... Uh, embark upon and you know once a plane is in full production the free cash flow starts to fall to the bottom and so Boeing right now is uh, has become I should say a tremendous free cash flow story allowing them to buy back greater amounts of stock and to increase their dividend at a very healthy rate for what looks like to be years to come. Back four years free cash flow seven billion eight billion twelve billion fourteen billion why not do $14 billion another time and modeled out to $17 billion. So just over the span of a Howard Ward ownership, you can go from $8 billion out to uh, $17 billion on free cash flow. With that said, you have to know when to buy. How do you determine? Is it dividend yield? Is it some well, form of ratio multiple? You know, no, so, so you know, Boeing is an industrial. It's a little bit of a unique industrial. But like most industrials, uh, you want to buy them when actually the best time to buy them, I should say, is when the economy isn't doing well and when industrials are not doing well and when the stocks have been underperforming for a right. period of time. And and that's not the current environment. And, you know, in 2008, 2009, for example, would have been an outstanding time mm-hmm. to acquire Boeing shares. And uh, so that's what you really have to do. Right. And, and you have to be patient if you're going to wait for those kinds of opportunities. And otherwise, you can still do fine, right. but the returns won't be as great. You survived December. The New York Rangers were terrible. <laughs> then you survived January and February. The New York Rangers were terrible. I know. Now you're in March and the New York Rangers are still terrible. Yeah. How have the last three months been? Oh, wise one. Yeah, they've been they've been brutal for uh, actually for New York sports in general. It hasn't been a how about Gabelli sports? You guys, what do you do? Well, watch more, watch more hockey. We uh, we just focus on uh, watching that ticker tape go by every day. And uh, what do you see there more. right now? I mean, it's been well, Tom, just an incredible. Yeah, whipsaw. Tom. So you know, uh, since the beginning of the year, we've seen uh, negative earnings estimate revisions on the S and P. They've S&P estimates for this year have come down about 7% from around $178 a share to about $168 a share. Uh, And given the trends that we see in terms of uh, increasing weakness in the global economy, including here at home, for example, the Conference Board's Index of Leading Economic Indicators here in the U.S. has fallen for four consecutive months. And there's, you know, weakness in in autos and housing and, and, and retail sales and uh, I think the weekly unemployment claims are bubbling higher. So, uh, you know, we think there's more negative earnings estimate revisions to come. 
And that has not been fully priced in. So we're a little bit cautious on the market near term. And I'd also yeah. say I think the market is sort of baked in some sort of a deal with China on trade. And uh, whatever that deal is, and I'm sure there right. will be one, I'm sure Trump will announce it as being the greatest trade deal in history. It won't be, but uh, mm. he'll, he'll try to make that headline point. Well. Um, but the market is sort of baked in probably something similar to what we're going to get. China is going to agree to buy more soybeans and cars, and there'll be well, a few compromises here and there. But it's not going to be a, 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 a you know the deal that Trump's going to want you to think it is. Howard Apple, thank you so much for being with us today. <laughs> thank you, Howard Ward of Gabelli. Uh, we're thrilled that he could attend today with with major news though. Let's get right to it because there's so many distractions with Boeing and Brexit and all that. I just want to spend some time in the American economy. You can do that with Lindsay Piegza, Stiefel, uh, joining us now. Uh, Dr. Piegza, um, I'm fascinated by the Atlanta GDP now forecast, which is not at recession levels, but has come down well under 1% towards 0% Q1 growth. How do you use the forecasting model of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta? Well, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good to use that as a gauge of almost sentiment. This is how the market is feeling. This is how the Fed is viewing the economy. Now, the Atlanta GDP model does tend to be incredibly volatile. Yes. So you do have to take it with a grain of salt. There are wild swings after each data point being released. So it doesn't necessarily give us a specific uh, target or even a target range. But I think it does give us a general sense of right. the, the directional momentum as well as the, the general feel of the market. What is the, right now, as you mentioned, it's pretty dismal. What, okay, it's pretty dismal. What is the vector that you see at Stiefel right now? Our audience is riveted by the interviews we have of optimism versus some would say the reality they're feeling out there. What's the Stiefel vector? Well, I, I think the, the most important thing, as opposed to just focusing on the first quarter, is looking at the long-term directional trend for the Fair. economy. Okay. If you look at 2019, we see the economy losing significant momentum relative to what we saw in 2018. We're looking for the economy to fall well below 2%, closer to a range of one5 to 1.8% for the year of 2019. So again, quarter-to-quarter volatility aside, we're looking for a 1.5 to 1.8% growth rate for the year. Lindsay, outside of this debate, there is also a big debate taking place that the headline inflation rate won't be uh, boosted by what's happening with wages. Wage growth was really impressive last week, and there is just this comfort, I think, that that won't bleed into headline price pressure. Do you share that belief? Well, if, first off, I don't know if I, if I agree with your characterization that wage growth was really impressive. It, it certainly was uh, an improvement from the more lackluster pace of wage growth that we've seen over the past couple of years. But in my opinion, it's almost too little too late. I, I do think the more recent backup in wages that we've seen is going to prove very short-lived, as we do fear the risk of recession now lurking around the corner. Also, when we look into some of the wage specifics, the wage gains seem to be relatively segmented into particular areas of the economy, areas where skills, specific skills, are in high demand but very low supply, meaning IT, engineering, accounting, craft labor. 
The Fed has specifically noticed, uh, noted these pockets of wage pressures, and that's pretty much what we're seeing in the data as opposed to a broad-based increase across all sectors. So certainly there are some workers out in the labor market that are feeling that wage pressure, but not everyone is feeling that. Some are being left behind. Well, Lindsay, certainly the the assessment is all relative, of course, and relative to the last 10 years. I think it's impressive relative to what we have got. And I understand that, relatively speaking, the, uh, the data we've had before hasn't been great. Going forward from here, I think there's a big, big question about being late cycle. I've heard that so many times over the last couple of years that we're late cycle. Five years ago, we were late cycle. Why are we late cycle now? Well, I think we're late cycle now because when we look out and we look at the trajectory of the recovery, there is very little evidence that it will be sustained much beyond 2019. So, in fact, we are looking for a recession to set in potentially as early as the first quarter of 2020. So we see this bleeding momentum among a number of key sectors of the economy. The consumer beginning to lose a little bit of momentum when we look at their spending patterns. Business uh, investment starting to wane. The Fed specifically noting the, the moderating pace of corporate dollars flooding into investment areas. Housing starting to lose uh, ground as well. We've seen now 10 consecutive months of negative sales activity. So I I think at this point, it's very clear that the domestic economy, independent of the international weakness, is beginning to lose momentum. And it's very clear that this expansion is coming to an end, in our opinion. And Dr. Piazza, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Lindsay. This morning, that was a a well-needed update and, of course, very different than some of the optimistic. 2020 recession. That's a cool. Yeah, but it's, it's detail. What I like about her call, whether I agree with it or not, is she's granular. I'm not sure which airport you're out of. You come out of Gatwick or Stansted or whatever, and when you need to get on the jet to go up to Liverpool to root for the Liverpoolians, whatever they're called. Well, I'm you sure do, it's not that. <laughs> sure it's not that. You do it out of uh, the smaller aircraft of the United Kingdom. He is expert on European transportation and all things Boeing and Airbus. Christopher Jasper with us. Have you ever done that? Do you take the train to Liverpool to see the mighty play, uh, Christopher, or or do you take an airplane? What, what, how do you get there? Nowadays? I usually take the train, but to be honest, I have taken the, the plane on the odd occasion, certainly. These planes, these 737s and this smaller Airbus, they're the workhorse of all those short distances of Europe. Do you assume, and I know you're speaking as a journalist and not as you know a pundit or expert, but we see Southeast Asia and now Oman of the Middle East come in. Do you assume European announcements on the 737 MAX? It's an interesting question, and I think it's uh, probably a crucial one for Boeing as well. I mean, we might think expect the uh, U.S. carriers to... Uh, uh, to sort of stay in line following the FAA's uh, advice. At the moment, uh, as we understand it, EASA, which is the European Safety Regulator, uh, you know, would, would, would endorse uh, the FAA's recommendations. If EASA was to break ranks, then that would be a, a huge deal, and obviously the Europeans would follow. But uh, it's, it's possible that uh, some U- European carriers could see it differently. At the moment... Uh, that appears not to be the case. The focus is generally uh, in Asia and a handful of, uh, of African yeah. carriers and also some in, 
in Latin America. Why actually. is that? Do we have a why yet? I mean, John Farrow was speculating on it. We're not, you know, I, I really don't want to do that. But do we have a why of this geographic bent? It's an interesting one. I mean, I think I, I think you can see, I mean, initially we had uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia itself and Indonesia, which, of course, is where the Lion Air plane crashed last year, followed by China, uh, which uh, views itself as a sort of an emerging regulatory power as well as a, an aerospace power and all the rest. But in, in, in Asia, when we had today or overnight Singapore and Australia following suit, which are two... Uh, administrations within the aviation world that are highly respected, then that's almost uh, um, as um, potentially devastating for Boeing as if uh, yeah. some of the Europeans had, uh, had decided to break ranks. Is this, and this, this goes to Christopher Jasper's just real ex expertise on uh, these different planes. Is the baby Boeing, the 737 or the MAX, whatever, is it substantially different from the baby Airbus, the direct competition, or are they really remarkably the same? Which is it? Well, they're very similar in uh, in some ways, but uh, each augmentation of the aircraft has, has taken them in slightly different directions. But Airbus endorsed fly-by-wire technology, for example, uh, earlier than Boeing what did. What does that and, mean? Um, well, Basically, controlling uh, the aircraft's uh, flight surfaces, uh, the you know the tail and and flaps and so on, uh, by electronic wiring rather than hydraulically, and they had mm -hmm. real problems with that in, in in the early days, and certainly in the early days of the A320, there was a, a crash there which was problematic for Airbus. Boeing stuck with um, the with hydraulic systems for longer, and and all planes have still got those systems, but. Uh, Boeing is is moved in that direction itself now, and uh, mm. I mean, ironically, the, the the thing that may be at fault with the seven three seven Max is is a system that Boeing installed on this plane, which wasn't present on the previous uh, version, uh, to, to enhance safety, to actually provide well, an, an override that would. Yeah step in when it needed to and the pilot needed help yeah i mean i'm glad you bring this up and we covered this yesterday and thanks to uh, the the blog the air current john astro out in seattle for a detailed article on this mcas system to review uh, uh christopher th 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 to review this the engines are moved forward off the wing to increase fuel consumption but in doing that it tips the nose of the plane upwards naturally and you have to have systems to bring the nose back down do i have that right well that 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 may be one case where that system would would kick in but ultimately it's intended to uh to step in at any point where the uh aircraft faces yeah. a potential stall situation we're not talking about the engine stalling we're talking about the wing i.e the plane loses lift and threatens to go out of control uh, and the MCAS system will will step in and dip the nose to uh, rectify that and 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 uh, increase the airflow, which will keep the plane okay. flying. What did we know from Lion then, the Indonesian airline of a number of months ago, or is that yeah. still a mystery as well? It, it's a mystery, but um, we've had a preliminary report, and we've also had comment from Boeing, uh, and both agreed really that there was a a problem with that system. Uh, which can be traced to a faulty sensor. There was a faulty sensor reading that suggested 
that in terms of speed and, and, and airflow that the plane was about to stall. So the MCAS system stepped in, dipped the nose to encourage the airflow. But unfortunately, the sensor was faulty. Uh, and that action in itself, taken automatically, jeopardised the plane. The pilots attempted to override that on a dozen occasions, but were unable to do so. Right. Uh, now, Boeing says, well, it was in the manual. They should have really known how to do that. Plus, the sensor itself was possibly uh, incorrectly installed. Right. So they say they then issued further advice on you know, what to do in such a situation. And that's why they right. argue that the plane is safe well, if you follow... The, the flying uh, manual to the letter. If you're just joining us, Christopher Jasper with us with Bloomberg News in London, just, just definitive on uh, not only airlines, but the engineering of all these different systems. Let me ask you a beyond delicate question. I'm sitting in our New York studios with Paul Sweeney and John Tucker, and we all have a perception of the gradient of doctors that we see, the gradient, the variance of dentists that we see, and lawyers. Are all pilots the same from Christopher Jasper's view, or is there a variance in commercial pilot quality? Well, we used to say that there's a, a, a variance, you know, a few decades ago. I think, to be fair, that, that, that you know, it was clearer, um, certainly in terms of some of the safety data. But there's a much more global industry now. For example, you know, there are pilots all over the world flying all over the Middle East, all over. Asia, and if you look at Ethiopian Airlines in particular, you know they've been a get-ahead airline for decades now. They were one of the first planes to introduce the the seven six seven many years ago, and of course they were a very early customer for the seven eight Dreamliner, seven eight seven Dreamliner. They've ordered the Airbus A three fifty, and and they've got the the Max. So they've got a very new fleet. Uh, it's a big fleet. They're the biggest carrier in Africa. They're the only consistently profitable carrier in Africa. They're fighting their way against the the big three Gulf carriers. So, you know, Ethiopian is not an airline that you'd expect right. to see an event uh, yeah. like this if it was pilot-related. This has been hugely valuable. I hope to get this out on our podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify as well. Christopher Jasper from our London studios. Uh, he is with uh, Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.